Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. Another live edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North. On this Wednesday, June 15th, just after 4.01 Eastern Time, if you're in the uh, Rocky Mountains of Alberta, you are at, uh, what is it, 2.01 if you're in BC, you're at 1.01 if you're in Newfoundland, I think you add an hour and a half, and if you're in the Solomon Islands, I have no idea, but I trust that you know what time it is wherever you are. Uh, that, I take that from Mark Stein when he does his live audio shows. He always starts with a, a beautiful poetic recitation of the time zones around the world, so he's uh, he's rubbing off on me here, but uh, thanks very much for tuning into the program today. We're going to speak later on with United Conservative Party leadership candidate Rebecca Schultz. We'll talk to all of the UCP leadership candidates. And in a moment, we'll talk to lawyer extraordinaire Keith Wilson. But I just want to set the stage here because the way the liberals were talking about it yesterday, it's great news. They have great news to bring us some freedom for the peasants. Let's take a look at Omar Al-Gabra's comments yesterday. This is thanks to the millions of Canadians who rolled up their sleeves and got vaccinated. That's why today's announcement is possible. And I'm pleased to announce that on June 20th, our government will suspend the requirement to be vaccinated in order to board a plane or train in Canada. Okay, he was saying it was great news and, you know, we've earned it thanks to the vaccination rates. That sounds good. That sounds nice. What they've done is made it so that as of June 20th, you don't have to be vaccinated to board an airplane or a train in Canada. They've also suspended the vaccine mandate for workers in those sectors and for federal employees. So you could, if you're unvaccinated and you were laid off, theoretically go back to work. Now, here's the thing. It still is in place, this Arrive Can app. You still have to be vaccinated if you want to get out of things like quarantine and testing. If you want a friend to come visit you who's not vaccinated, they they can't come into the country. It's that simple. The air travel mandate hasn't even been thrown completely into the scrap bin where it belongs. It's been suspended. It's been suspended. If you look at the government's messaging, they're saying that they have to be wary of potential new variants. So this could just be a temporary reprieve, a little temporary taste of liberty before the winter comes around and we get thrust right back into it. And obviously the airport situation right now, especially in Toronto, is driving this more than science because you can't defend the indefensible. And one gentleman who knows this all too well is the lead lawyer for a very significant piece of litigation against the government on this that we have, uh, started with former Newfoundland Premier Brian Peckford, who is denied uh, the right to travel the country by commercial air because he's not vaccinated. And in doing so, it's a large country. He, he, he got to Ottawa during the convoy, so you can get around it. But generally speaking, this is not conducive to living in a country that supposedly has mobility rights within it. Keith Wilson joins me on the line now. And I should just say, uh, right before we get into it, Keith, uh, in the background there, I have uh, my upcoming book, The Freedom Convoy. I spoke to you for that, and, and you gave tremendous insights, as you always do. But it's good to have you on the show again. I just ordered three copies. I was hoping you might sign them, but I don't think Amazon facilitates that. So hey, well, we'll have to we'll have to meet up in person. Uh, I would it would be my honor. And thank you very much for that, Keith. Uh, let, let's start right out of the gate here. The, the mandate is, let's just say it's gone. Let's be charitable and say that the suspension will be permanent. Your lawsuit is continuing, correct? Yeah, and and you know we're going to talk about the fact that it's not gone. I uh, appreciated your intro and that you've picked up on the sleight of hand here. 
uh, by the federal government. But so uh, I can update you uh, hot off the press here, so to speak. This morning, we were in an emergency application before the federal court brought by the federal government lawyers. They are requesting that the uh, Peckford lawsuit, and it's not just uh, former Premier Brian Peckford, it's also a number of other, five other applicants, Canadians that we represent uh, with my legal team through the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms, as well as a couple of other lawsuits brought by from some very capable counsel, uh, uh, the Carl uh, Harrison uh, case, and we're all consolidated into one case before the court. So this morning, uh, well, last night, we had a fight with the, the lawyers from uh, Justice Canada saying, well, you guys should be happy and fold your tent. And we said, no, we're not folding our tent. Nowhere near. Even then, it was less clear than it is this morning as to what exactly the government's proposing. But um, our, the position we took yesterday was, even if all of the mandates are gone, to give your scenario life, Andrew, we're still bringing this to court because Canadians need to know whether their charter rights mean anything. This government has completely stomped on millions of Canadians' fundamental rights, um, not just with respect to mobility, the obvious ones, but you know, having freedom to decide what the government can force you to put into your body, uh, religious freedoms and other freedoms. So, um, we made it clear and I made it forcefully clear to the lead counsel for the attorney general that no matter what this case must proceed, Canadians need to know one way or another, whether the charter means anything and whether governments can do this. Cause as we all know, uh, the number of times yesterday, the minister said it's suspended. We won't hesitate to bring them back in September. As Dr. Tam said, the next wave is coming in September. It's like, yeah, you mean seasonality of flus? Yeah, we, I thought we knew about that. So that gives you some context. We're going to move ahead regardless. Uh, we're going to have a fight about it because they're going to bring an application to have our lawsuit struck out. This morning, they were trying to stop the cross-examinations that are ongoing that I'd like to talk about later in our mm -hmm. interview um, they wanted to stop those because, uh, they're occurring as we speak and we were successful in getting the court to agree with us that in the meantime, we carry on and the government can bring its application at a later date to try and knock us out. Yeah. I want to talk about that, that cross-examination in a moment, but the first thing I, I would share with people when uh, the justice center for constitutional freedoms was uh, representing true North in our fight against the leaders debates commission, after we were excluded from covering the debate in, in 2019, uh, they government had that action uh, thrown out on the grounds of mootness. We got the injunction. We were allowed to cover the debate. We wanted to carry forward as well to get this on the record. And the government said, no, 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 it's moot. The debate's done. And then what happened in 2021, the debates commission again banned not us, but rebel news from covering and they were right back to square one. So, I mean, that's just one example. And there are many more of, of why you can't just say, or you shouldn't just say, oh, well, the, the policy's done. You have no grievance because that's a very convenient way for government to not have a judgment against them in court. If they just keep putting these things forward, taking them back, putting them forward, taking them back. Well, and to add some color to that, first of all, when is it that we are scheduled on this expedited process and we are working flat out like 
We're in six weeks of back-to-back daily cross-examinations, most of which are highly technical experts or or, or government officials with technical expertise. So we're working every day, six days a week, day and night to move this thing forward and get it to the court as quickly as possible. Even with that accelerated timeline, when are we supposed to be in court? You know, the week of September 19th, I believe it is off the top of my head. So um, when is the government talking about bringing back the mandates? September. So that's one sleight of hand. But the other is, um, you're right. We They've already said mootness, 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 meaning for those who aren't legal geeks, Uh, Mootness means there's no point in the court deciding because the issue's resolved, right? The mandate's gone. Uh, However, it is not uncommon in constitutional or charter matters to do a retrospective analysis. It happens all the time in a criminal setting. Something happened six months ago. Someone got pulled over. The police did X. They didn't warn. Was it a violation of someone's charter rights against uh, unreasonable search and seizure? So it's not unusual for the court to not have... What's unusual is to have an ongoing, reoccurring breach of charter rights affecting 6 million Canadians reoccurring every single day. That's what's unusual. So anyway, as you can tell, we're going to make an aggressive argument that this case has to be heard. You know, I, I never like to get too conspiratorial, and it may be impossible to uh, deduce motives from government, but do you think in, in some level they don't want the information that you're getting from this cross-examination process, which I'm assuming is supporting the idea that there is no scientific basis for this mandate? Do you think it's that they don't want that, and that's why the timing is, is happening right now? That's why they're ending the mandates now and then trying to get, or suspending the mandates and then trying to get this case dismissed? Well, the, the, the legal team and I have talked about that and all we can do is speculate. Um, we don't think the cross-examinations have been going particularly well for the government witnesses. Um, and we think it's a factor. Uh, what level of factor it is, because as we know, even his caucus has started to turn on him. Uh, the fact that, you know... One of the things that I've walked the uh, government witnesses through, uh, if I just might, because it's, 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 it's serious, but it's a little bit funny. And I do it with a completely straight face. And I, I say to like the epidemiologist or the, the person from Health Canada who approved the vaccines, both of whom I've cross-examined. And I, I put to them, um, I say, all right, um, are you aware of any studies or medical evidence that suggests cell biology and physiology of humans who live in the United Kingdom, Europe, is different than the cell biology and physiology of Canadians in this geopolitical boundary called Canada? <laughs> and I look like, wow, this lawyer's not very sharp. And they go, no. You know, human biology is human biology. And I go, oh, okay, thank you. Um, and are you aware of the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus behaving differently in the geopolitical boundaries of the United Kingdom and Europe, for example, relative to the geopolitical boundaries of Canada? And then they look at me like I'm really stupid and say, no. And then I go, okay. Are you aware from your life experience and your review of the literature with respect to disease transmission risk and air travel 
whether there is something fundamentally different and unique about the aircraft that are used to transport people in Canada relative to the aircraft that are used to transport people in the UK and Europe. You see what I've just established? Yes. There's no reason for a different policy. Are you aware of any scientific information that you believe your colleagues in the international health communities in other countries are aware of? No. Okay. Well, I think we've just established this is political. So, and I don't get to say that last part. That's for the judge. Now, I think that's brilliant, and and I think it points to an issue that a lot of people have raised. Why is the the science that we're supposed to be following so much different in Canada than anywhere else? Why are our doctors so much more enlightened than everywhere else, or are our doctors, quite frankly, not, and are our politicians not? And I, people can draw their own conclusions from that. But I, I will say, when you bring up that question, that line of questioning, and we look at some of the other court uh, rulings that have taken place, not at the Supreme Court, but on other things related to lockdowns and, and other restrictions. Courts, it seems like, have been very deferential to government. And even when they've said, yes, a breach has occurred, they've saved that under Section 1 by saying it's it's a reasonable limit. And I guess the I mean, I would assume on this case, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that it's ultimately going to come down to that Section 1 analysis to whether it's a, a reasonable limit. But do you think that on this issue, that latitude and deference that we've seen is still going to be a factor? Uh, I don't know. We're assuming it is. And that's why we've adopted a strategy that I'm going to be careful not to say out loud. And that's partly why I've not been doing media interviews lately. So I'm worried I'm going to reveal the strategy. We're very alive to that dynamic. And I believe we have a very... Uh, powerful strategy to neutralize it lawfully. So it's so, a dynamic for sure. We, 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 and, and remember, there, there, there are some key differences, of course. The early cases went when we were in the early phases of our whole COVID nightmare. And by the nightmare, I more mean the government response than the disease mm -hmm. itself. Um, um, so little was known. Uh, the data was all muddled up, you know, you some guys riding a motorcycle pulls out to pass and becomes a grill ornament uh, of a cement truck. They bring them in, what's left of them. They test them, always positive for COVID. Oh, there's another COVID death. Are you kidding me? He was on a motorcycle at a head-on collision with a cement truck. Anyhow, so I could go on. Um, we, we believed that this vaccine was going to be like a vaccine. In other words, stop you. You get the polio vaccine, you don't get polio. You get the pneumonia vaccine, you don't get pneumonia. You get the shingles vaccine, you don't get shingles. Yeah, our triple vax prime minister just got COVID for the second time in four months. Yeah, well, and what's alarming too, not to digress, but just as a footnote, one of the things that's really coming out is the people who are filling up the hospitals now to the extent there is any filling occurring, because even that's an overstatement. But the ones that the group that is the largest group in hospital is the triple vaxxed. Those are the ones that seem to have the weakest immune systems, given the actual data and the opinion of the experts that we've presented. So when we look at this mandate, and I think politically, we could all see it for what it is. It's punitive, it's wedge politics, and I think it ultimately was prolonged after the convoy when Justin Trudeau wanted to get back at these truckers that embarrassed him. I your view is that this is not just one of the many policy options available to government. This is strictly unconstitutional. Gover no government should have the right to do this, correct? 
I don't think, yeah, I think it's a clear, uh, a clear violation of fundamental charter rights. I think it's a clear example of government overreach on steroids. Um, yeah, that's our position. And, and we're, uh, um, you know, because there, as you point out to your listeners that, um, we're, we're going to establish a charter breach. It's just a question of how many, I mean, mobility for sure. Um, so then we're going to be into this section one fight. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means you're into the Oaks test. And that is, is the infringement of charter rights demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society? Uh, uh, was there a lesser measure available to the government? Is there a rational connection between the restrictions and the harm they're seeking to avoid? Well, <laughs> the air travel one fails on that in spades. Um, uh, and then... Is there proportionality? Is there proportionality between the impact of the violation of rights and the good that comes from it? And we're, we're smoking them on that too. And the interesting thing is, it's really legally important. People may not pick up on this legal nuance, but as soon as, so we have the onus to prove the charter breach. So um, we have to bring concrete evidence to show it. Once we establish it in real time, this is very rare in law, there's a sh onus shift. It flips immediately over to the government where they have to present the evidence to prove they meet the Oaks test. So um, uh, we're confident that we have sufficient evidence so far and we're only, we still have cross-examination scheduled for every day um, uh, from now, they started in mid-May and they go up to uh, June 30th. And then we start our, our court brief and our factum writing process. And, and as to whether there was a lesser means available. Now, I wouldn't support this because I, I think it's, again, incredibly intrusive. But, but even if the government, because when, when the government first introduced the vaccine mandate, they had a testing alternative that you could use for the first month to theoretically give people time to get vaccinated. And that was something that, again, would have been a useless bottleneck, was quite meaningless. There are lots of people that test positive and would have no idea they're sick because it's a false positive or because they're, they're asymptomatic. But, but that would at least not close off air and rail travel to 6 million Canadians like this. So, I mean, that right there, to me, is a, a less intrusive means that the government it didn't even seem like considered beyond that first month. Uh, you're, you're officially on the legal team as of right now. Uh, no, <laughs> we had... Yeah, we spotted that one too. Yeah, that's we've we've pursued that extensively. Uh, you know, okay, you put it to the witness. All right, uh, a scenario, a doctor, uh, you're you're vaccinated and you're sitting on an airplane, and you have an, a vaccinated person sitting beside you. Neither of you have been tested. It's possible you would agree with me, doctor, that that person sitting beside you could be positive with COVID, correct? And they could transmit it to you even though they're vaccinated, correct? Yes, yes, yes. All right. Wouldn't you be safer if you're sitting on that airplane and an unvaccinated person was sitting beside you that was tested before getting on the airplane? You'd agree with me, doctor, that that person's safer to you and has a greater likelihood of reducing the transmission of COVID, right? You know, so. And, and yeah. have they answered Sorry, that? Sorry, I'm in this cross-examination mode. My apologies. <laughs> no, I'm, cu I'm curious, my though, if you're, wife, if you're getting you know, the clear answers. I put answers it to you that the that. salt shaker is at the end of the table. <laughs> I say my poor <laughs> wife. <laughs> so as, as we look at this then going forward, Keith, and I don't know how many people you, you get to subject to this cross-examination, and let me tell you, I do not envy them at all, but does it get to the, I mean, have you unearthed or have you approached that 
area of finding out who actually made this call? Because it often has seemed that it's not really the doctors that are making these calls, it's the politicians. And in some cases, the, the politicians say that they're just completely hands off on this. But is that within the scope of, of what you're able to uncover? Oh, yeah. We pursue that every day. And it's, I, I, I kind of, my wife and I have four kids and I kind of feel every day like coming home and finding the cookie jar empty and saying to the kids, all right, who took all the cookies? And they all go, wasn't me, right? So uh, <laughs> what's become clear is they say either it wasn't them or if it was them, if so there's 16 government witnesses that the government has put forward, very senior government officials, uh, properly credentialed in the right places. They say that um, they only make recommendation, the decision as to whether or not the mandate remains or is in place or is revoked is a political decision. It's made by cabinet. It's not made by them. And then the cabinet ministers were parading themselves before the microphones for the last several weeks saying, hey, it's not us, it's the experts. Well, the experts have testified under oath, it's not them. So it's obvious that this is just a political process and they're using, uh, they're engaged in a political decision-making process. And it's just, it's just become obvious to so many Canadians what's really going on here. Well, we very much look forward to the trial and, and the other things you're able to unearth there. And I, I know you won't let them off the hook easily, nor should you. And uh, thanks again for uh, for chatting as uh, we were working on this Freedom Convoy book. I, I think people will find you had a lot to offer and I, we very much appreciate it. Thank you, Keith. Looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Keith Wilson, the lead counsel on the fight in federal court against the vaccine mandate, which has not been revoked. It's been suspended. And this is very important because two weeks to flatten the curve was supposed to be two weeks. The temporary becomes the permanent with government. And it's also interesting that a lot of this is coming right now when we're seeing huge chaotic situations at airports. Well, if you're making this a policy change just to deal with airport craziness, that's not COVID science. That's not the science of virology and epidemiology. That's trying to mitigate the problems at airports. Now, again, I, I don't disagree with them lifting this, but it's proving that it's always been wafer thin, if not non-existent scientific evidence to support this. And we're talking, well, this was in October. So November, December, January, February, March, April, May, June, eight months eight months that six million people in this country have been denied the right to get on an airplane or get on a train. And effectively, because of that, denied the right to leave the country because there's a vaccine mandate at the land border in the U.S. Now, a lot of unvaccinated people have had no issue getting into the U.S. because it's, it's lax enforcement. But technically speaking, have been prohibited from leaving their country, even to countries that don't have a vaccine mandate, to countries that don't care whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. And, and even Europe, which conservatives have often looked at as being where freedom goes to die, has been above and beyond better than North America. Now, that's not to say early on it was the case. I mean, the UK was uh, had a, an abysmal COVID response, arresting people for sitting on park benches, but they moved beyond it a lot more quickly. To the point that now there's not a single COVID restriction or mandate in place in the United Kingdom. Same as in most of continental Europe as well. 
when I was in uh, covering the World Economic Forum in Davos, uh, no one asked me for a vaccine passport. No one asked me for anything of the sort. People just took you as you were. They took you as you came, and that was it. But in Canada, we're still stuck in April 2020 to the point of just punishing the unvaccinated. If it was ever about science, it certainly isn't now. And I, I look at I look at this this press release from the government where they say that they're going to suspend the vaccine mandates for domestic travelers, transportation workers, and federal employees. Well, a lot of those federal employees have had to go find other jobs. So I don't know how many of them there are that can go back to work in the first place. But moreover, how eager would you be? How likely would you be to go back to your job? If you know that the government's only promising to have a temporary suspension. The government's not guaranteeing that this is going to be a permanent change. The government is not guaranteeing that this won't just be thrust back in the fall to how things are now and that these people will be out on their rear ends again without jobs. So this is, I think, something that people need to start calling for accountability on from the government. And, and there's going to be a rumspring of sorts where a lot of unvaccinated people are booking their trips right now for the 20th, say, yeah, I'm getting out of Dodge. And I, I talked to one of them who said, I'm booking a one-way ticket. You know, I'm finally allowed out of the country. I'm not interested in coming back in. And a load of good it is if they've made this change, but not allowed the unvaccinated to get out of quarantine, not allow them to get out of some of the testing requirements. So, and you still have to use a RiveCan. And if you're unvaccinated and not a Canadian, you still can't come into the country. You're still prohibited from entering Canada. So what's happening is all of these changes that are not being made, the government is hoping we will forget about. And, and we can never forget and never forgive. Vaccinated or unvaccinated, I don't care. The whole point that I've had through this whole time is that I do not care what you choose to do. But what we can absolutely not do is, is forget that this was the government that for eight months segregated society along these lines to the point of denying mobility within their country by the most effective and realistic means available, which is getting on a commercial airplane. And it's not the airlines. It's not the airlines behind this. You had WestJet, whose CEO was on a plane in Europe taking a selfie without his mask. And I think I mentioned last week, uh, whenever I was, whenever, I think it when it was last week, yeah, when I was in the UK and I had a little flight from London Heathrow to Dublin and no mask for that 90 minutes. And you know what? No COVID. No COVID by the end of it. I don't know if I've got natural immunity or if I just got lucky, but I was completely fine. The world did not crumble. The plane didn't fall out of the sky. But these are all the things that we're being told are so dangerous. How, we, we can't do it. We have to trust the science. Listen to the science. And I think Keith Wilson's point on this was incredibly valid. Why is the science supposedly so much different, so much more different in Canada than anywhere else? Why is our science not as good as their science? Or why is our science better than their science? I would say that it's probably not as good. That's why we're the only country in the world in a liberal democratic sphere, at least supposedly in a liberal democratic sphere, that is denying or was denying, well, is for the next five days, denying the right to travel domestically by air or rail. So all of this is part of a big discussion in Canada. And to go back to the lawsuit... The whole point of this is that uh, Keith Wilson, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, Brian Peckford, Maxime Bernier, they're still fighting this because their argument is, and I think there's probably merit to that, the government by its own admission, by its own admission, the government has said this is just a temporary suspension. 
that if another terrifying variant of concern comes, uh, if a government uh, comes along and does this uh, and sees this and says, well, you know, we're, we're not sure, um, like, <laughs> then, then what's going to happen is we're going to be right back to square one. In any case, that is my little rant for today. We'll, we'll cover this more as the story uh, evolves or devolves, depending on what happens in the next little while. But first, I want to jump into Ontario, uh, sorry, Alberta politics. That is, a, that is a slip I am never, ever going to be forgiven for. What I was going to say is that we had an Ontario election and spent a lot of time covering an Ontario politics, but now we're going to jump to Alberta politics, where the UCP leadership race is in full force. We know that the uh, party is uh, going towards a contest to who, for who's going to become the Premier of Alberta and then lead the party into the next election now that uh, Jason Kenney has announced he's stepping down. And one of the candidates is the former Alberta Cabinet Minister Rebecca Schultz, who joins me on the line now. Rebecca, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Hi, Andrew. It's my pleasure. Good to see you again. Yes, we caught up at the Canada Strong and Free Networking Conference in Ottawa. And at the time, we, we didn't even know there was going to be a leadership race. And, and here we are, and, and you've announced your candidacy. Why is it that you want to be the leader of your party and, and the premier of Alberta? You know, I would say that first and foremost, I believe in the future of our party, but also in the province of Alberta. We have so much to offer and we need somebody who can stand up and defend the constitutional rights of Albertans, um, make sure that we continue to drive economic growth and keep our party united so that we can defeat the NDP in uh, 2023. Our provincial election next year uh, is in the spring. And so I think you know, it's been a really difficult time. Um, you know, I think obviously everybody knows that. And I think instead of vilifying each other and as conservatives, you know, um, you know, focusing on some of the things that divide us, we really need a leader who can bring us together. Remember who our true opponent is, which is the NDP uh, and take them on here in Alberta next year. You know, we had a leadership review for Premier Kenny that was very close, virtually 50-50. So no matter which way someone goes, the party is divided. The party is split down the middle. How do you not just build a winning coalition from that in the leadership race, but beyond that, when you have that division in your party? You know, and it's tough. And I think, you know, everybody largely, whether I'm talking to party members or Albertans, I think people agree that they fully expect governments are going to make decisions that they disagree with. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's that. What we've heard is that, you know, we've we've gotten off track. Our government has done a lot of really great things. Our economy here in Alberta um, is kind of on fire. We're taking off coming out of, you know, like I said, an economic recession, a tough two years. Our unemployment is at the lowest rate since 2015. Um, more jobs created every day. Things are looking up, but we did get off track. Oftentimes people say it was our tone. We felt like how you were communicating decisions um, didn't show that you heard what we were saying. We, we didn't feel heard. We didn't feel listened to. Um, and so I think, A, we have to switch the tone. B, I am so dedicated to the conservative movement. Um, that is not something that's new for me. I think we need somebody who understands that the grassroots party members engaging with people, uh, door knocking, getting out there, listening and taking action. That's important. That's just as important as governing, is keeping our coalition together. And so I think, you know, it takes somebody that's highly motivated, very committed. Um, the first thing I committed to do is door knock in every single constituency across this province, meet with our 
uh, local UCP community boards and those presidents make sure that they know that they have a seat at the decision making table and that they're heard. Um, I'm willing to do that. You know, our opposition here, they are highly motivated. They are working very hard. They are very disciplined um, and we need a disciplined team. We have an awesome team. We have amazing, talented MLAs um, and they want their talents and strengths to be used as well. Looking at the, the field itself, two of the early candidates to get in, Brian Jean and Danielle Smith, were uh, coming into the race uh, as outsiders from the, the caucus. Well, I guess Brian Jean, not as much of an outsider from the caucus now, but but outsiders of the caucus over the last two years and, and certainly from the cabinet. You were a member of Premier Kenny's cabinet, and, and obviously there's been a lot of controversy about the handling of the COVID file, and I know you weren't the health minister, you weren't responsible for, for that file specifically, but how have you felt the the reception in the last day since you've announced from the members towards you being a part of a government that wasn't popular by the last by the end of it with the last with a large chunk of the members you know and i think it, it the reception has actually been really positive like we kicked off the campaign yesterday and we've seen a lot of support. I think part of it is because um, largely what I've heard is people, it, it's not just the decisions that were made. And even on COVID, even at my announcement yesterday in my constituency, there were people on all sides of the COVID issue uh, in one room, united around our conservative movement on my around my candidacy. And largely, I think, again, it's people had an issue with how some of those decisions were made, how they were communicated, the tone. Um, they want to see people's differing views respected, right? And that people aren't being vilified for, for holding different views. Um, me being able to say that out loud and say, look, we didn't do everything right. And my colleagues, I, I know many of them sitting at that table would say the same thing. We didn't get it all right. But I'm willing to tell you now, here's what I'm hearing from you. I want you to hear it from me so that you know I'm listening and that I'm going to show you the humility that you want to see in your government and your elected officials. Because it's true, we're not going to do everything right all the time. Um, but I think people want somebody who is committed to them, who wants to hear them and who shows some humility and not just talks about it. Were vaccine passports, in your view, a policy itself that was wrong or were they a victim of that poor communication that you just mentioned? So I would say, you know, we in Alberta did do things a little bit differently. We tried to make sure that there were exemptions uh, to that program, the restriction exemption program, recognizing that there were people um, making different choices for, for various reasons. We also had major issues with hospital capacity. We did. Uh, we knew that was an issue even before the election, even before COVID. Um, but, you know, it's really, I, I think it's hard to say, it's easier to sit on the sidelines and look at some of those issues. But when we're, we were really truly making some decisions around full ICUs, hospital capacities, essentially crisis in the healthcare system. And I think that's the issue we need to focus on is fixing that because we don't want to be in that position ever again. I know we'll do. We'll have you back on for a more formal interview later on in the race, as with the other candidates. This is more of a, an introduction, so I'll, I'll give you a question that you can take any way you'd like here. What is it that your campaign is about? So for me, our campaign is really focusing on getting back on track, saying that, look, as conservatives, we do well when we come together, when we do not compromise on our conservative roots. Um, but I also think that we need to show some compassion and common sense when we're making decisions. That is, you know, largely, I think, what Albertans want to see. 
Um, and I think that that's going to help us unify and stay uh, motivated and focused on, like I said, who our opponent really is. Um, you know, I do bring a unique perspective in terms of I am, you know, just as excited about grassroots campaigning uh, as every other aspect of the job. I firmly believe that Albertans want to see a competent conservative government. I know they do, especially with what we're seeing in the economy right now. Um, but also making sure that people are communicating, people like me communicating, um, you know what, I'm listening to the concerns of everyday Albertans, right? We want a strong economy, we want jobs, but we also want to make sure that you got a family doctor when you need it. I have two young kids, I want to make sure that they have a great education. That matters to me. Um, and so we got to talk about that stuff as well. Uh, and that's what I'm committing to do. All right. Well, Rebecca Schultz, the Calgary Shaw MLA and former uh, Children and Youth Services Minister in Alberta. Congratulations on the campaign launch. We'll talk to you soon. And thanks very much for joining. Thanks, Andrew. Anytime. All right. That was Rebecca Schultz. And again, I'm saying we're inviting all the candidates. We had uh, Danielle Smith on when she launched. We've had Rebecca on this week. We're extending invitations to all the others for uh, introductory interviews. And then we'll do some more formal sit downs once the race gets a bit situated. Now they're doing it, I should say, on a, a very different timeline. They're going to have this uh, sewn up, uh, I think, more quickly, ultimately. I, I mean, they're starting later, so it's not going to be before the federal conservative leadership race, but they're doing it in a, a tighter time frame. So uh, that'll be interesting to watch and and those rules just came out i think it was yesterday or, or two days ago so you can have a look at those and i should also say we're going to be doing a formal sit downs with the federal conservative leadership candidates as well we have an interview with uh, jean charret coming out this week we'll also be speaking to patrick brown next week we're uh, trying to schedule everything with all of the campaigns as we can it's a very aggressively camp it's aggressive campaign mode for them because the last leadership race no one was allowed to travel because of covid so now we have one where Everyone's doing every event, every clam. I don't know if they do clam bakes anymore, but if they did, they would be at the clam bakes. That does it for us for today. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show later this week. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.